today. Let's pray, because I need to get all of that out of my head and get this into my head. Father, we come to submit our hearts to you. It is a necessary thing that we approach your word with some degree of reverence and submission. We are willing to hear and willing to learn. We are to receive with meekness your word grafted into us. And we pray, Holy Spirit, you'll help us to do that in these moments, to open our hearts and our minds to receive from you. Amen. These past weeks I've been teaching that series on faith. And here's a definition of faith I'd like to give to you. Faith is in God, through Jesus, his Son, by the Holy Spirit, according to the truth of Scripture. If it's not about Jesus, it's not real faith. If it's not worked in us by the Holy Spirit, it's not real faith. And if it doesn't agree with Scripture, it's not true. All right? So people can have all kinds of faiths. You know, people talk about faith of this and this and this and this. But that is Christian faith. And therefore the only valid faith. Faith is not a power we operate. I'm going to turn on my faith here and make something happen. No, you're not. Faith is not focused upon an outcome, but upon God. I'm trusting God that he will help me and that he will bring this thing about. Yes, Faith is Godward, not inward. Jesus said, have faith in God. And the definition of the whole Christian life is, of course, found in Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. Now this morning, we come to faith and finance. How does Christian faith affect our attitude to and our use of money and wealth? How should a Christian handle their finances? Because we, we know what the unbelieving world has to say. Money makes the world go around. Get all you can. Keep all you can. Which is greed, avarice. Spend all you can. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, I'm going in water. Sorry. Thank you, Barbara. <coughs> spending is still greed and avarice, but it's, it's in spending rather than keeping. It's expressed in purchasing power rather than holding on to the money. In the late 1970s and into the 1980s, greed just took off. It became acceptable, even celebrated. I worked in the city of London during the yuppie years, so I saw it firsthand. All shame and reserve was discarded, and conspicuous consumerism became established. We must be seen to spend, to acquire, to have the newest, the most fashionable, the most expensive, whether it's clothes, thank you, brother, homes or cars or holidays or weddings. We've got to be seen to be spending. Personal debt from those years and continues to be multiplied as many people spent more than they could afford. That stronghold in our society has been tested by financial crises and crashes, more recently by COVID lockdowns, but we've yet to see whether our financial habits in our society have been really lastingly changed. Then there's what some in the church say. That every Christian should be rich because you're a child of God. We're promised unlimited wealth and unchallenged health, whether it's called the faith movement or health and wealth or prosperity teaching. I believe that all those forms of teaching are false teaching for a number of reasons. 
But let me point you today to this clear warning in Scripture. I'm going to read you a chunk of 1 Timothy 6. There's a bit of it up there. If anyone teaches otherwise than as Paul has taught Timothy and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, living in a godly way, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt mind, and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. In other words, faith is the route to riches. From such people withdraw yourself. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world. It is certain we can carry nothing out. And, but having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful appetites which drown men in destruction and perdition. And the love of money is a root of many kinds of evil. Not all kinds of evil, many kinds of evil. For which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Paul's writing to his protege Timothy. He says, but you... O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Some teach that godliness is the root to financial gain. That is false teaching. And there are other scriptures, Jude, Peter, that say the same or similar thing. I'll tell you who becomes rich from prosperity teaching, the people who preach it, because they live like kings on the giving of others. What moral value does money have? Some will say money is good. Others will say money is neutral. It's neither good nor evil. It depends what you do with it. Well, to your perhaps surprise, even shock, let's look at what Jesus talks about money, tells us about money. What did Jesus say about money? First of all, explaining the parable of the seed and the soils, which is commonly called the parable of the sower, but it's not really about the sower, it's about the seed laying in different kinds of soils. Jesus says the seed of the word or the gospel is received in different people in different ways. And in some people, the seed takes root for a little while, but among thorns. And Jesus explains that in this way. The seed lands and it begins to grow, but then it's choked. The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. In Luke, it's they've heard, they go out and are choked with cares, riches, pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. Riches and the love of riches chokes Christians from being fruitful. Jesus also said that it was hard for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And then in a passage, and again, it's a longish passage, but I want to read it to you. Notice what Jesus calls wealth and riches here. <clears throat> he calls it mammon, a false god. 
I say to you, make friends for yourselves. This is at the end of another parable which I haven't got time to go to. Make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. In other words, Christians, use this unrighteous stuff, this false God, to make lasting relationships with people that will carry through on into eternity. That's what Jesus is teaching them. He who is faithful in that which is least is also faithful also in much. He who is unjust in least is also unjust in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in handling this unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches, which are the kingdom of God? And if you've not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Mammon. You can't do it. There's a choice to be made. And the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard these things, and they derided him. They scoffed. In the words we just read, he calls money, wealth, mammon, a false god. He says it's unrighteous. He says it's deceitful. And those riches are not true riches. So money, according, I believe, to the words of Jesus, is not a good thing. It's not even just a neutral thing. It's a tricky, deceitful thing that you need real wisdom to handle. Handle with care. And where to be... Free from the love of money. <clears throat> we read it just now in Paul's letter to Timothy. You know, For the love of money is the root of many kinds of evil. And Paul writes to Timothy and to Titus, says that elders, overseers, bishops, pastors, which by the way are the same role and the same person in Scripture. I don't believe in Episcopalianism. The bishops are over something else and something else. The elder, the overseer, the bishop, and the pastor is the same role in church leadership in the New Testament language. And people who are appointed to that task must be free from the love of money or covetousness. They show no evidence of loving money. Paul also writes to the Hebrew believers in this way. Sorry, let me go go here. Hebrews 13. Let your conduct, your whole lifestyle, be without covetousness. Translate it another way, free from the love of money. Because covetousness is actually a Greek word, which is free from loving money. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Scripture warns us against the pursuit of riches for themselves, of wealth for its own sake. God calls the man who lives for just gaining more wealth a fool. We already read about, you know, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. We saw it in the video earlier. Our treasure is our measure. Where your heart is, there's your treasure. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. And if your heart is in pound signs, and numbers, then your heart is not towards God. 
Do we love and serve God or love and serve prosperity, wealth? We cannot avoid money. We handle it and receive it. But how do we do that with faith towards God? There's only time today to outline some principles, and I've headlined them in as few words as possible, one when I can do it. So first of all, first principle, God is our provider. The Christian lives in the provision of God, the daily bread supplied from heaven. God's supplying all of our needs. Beyond our earning, doesn't matter what business or government authority is paying us, it's God who orders our supply. It all comes from him. And because it's from God, it's a, it's a blessing from God. And we are blessed. We saw that earlier as well. But just as God commanded Abraham, as we are blessed, we are in turn to be a blessing. People like to claim blessing. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. It's an easy thing to do. It's much harder to go and then be a blessing. You've got to make some choices. You've got to put a hand in your pocket. You've got to give up some time. You've got to make some effort to actually go and be something to somebody and bless them and encourage them and help them financially, practically. The person who gains but does not give isn't really blessed. They're not really blessed because they think it's all for them. God said, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, but you're going to be a blessing. Then stewardship. We're stewards of all that we receive. I need to see the income I receive as being received from the hand of God rather than earned. The problem is, the more I think to myself, I've earned this, I deserve this, the more I will hold and use everything that comes in my hands for myself or for the people who are closest to me. But I'm a steward of the Lord. What I hold in my hands is from him. Jesus spoke a number of parables about handling money to teach the wider issue of stewardship. Everything is from the Lord. How we handle all that we have been entrusted with is a matter of accountability and how we deal with our fellow stewards too. How we handle one another. We're accountable for handling what we've received and our brothers and sisters, our fellow stewards as well. We are stewards, not owners. We give back to him only what was his in the first place and it still is his. View, quote from George Muller here. You probably can't see it. It's too pale on the screen, but never mind. George Muller, great man of faith. He trusted God for millions to build orphanages in Bristol and all that kind of thing. If he, we are indeed acting as stewards and not as owners, he will make us stewards over more. To whom he who has and handles it well, implication of what Jesus is saying, more will be given. Because he's not using it all for himself. He's trustworthy. Then tithes, tithing. Giving God the first tenth of our income. In Malachi 3, the Lord asks a troubling question of the people of Judah who returned from captivity to Jerusalem after decades of captivity. They were building, rebuilding the city, rebuilding the temple. And in the middle of that time, God raised a prophet called Malachi. And this is the question that Malachi sent to ask by the Lord. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? Well, in tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, so you've robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. 
if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing there will be not room enough to receive it. And I'll rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so he will not destroy the fruit of the, your ground, nor shall the wine fail to bear fruit, vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land. The Hebrew word there is Beulah, says the Lord of hosts. I'm sure that when Malachi heard those words that God wanted to say to the people, his heart was in his mouth when he was saying them as we say. But for the people who heard that prophetic declaration at that time, the words of the Almighty through the prophet Micah, that must have been a heart-stopping, breathtaking, hand-on-mouth moment. (gasps) Did he just say, yes, he did? You've robbed me. How? In tithes and offerings. A tithe is one-tenth of what we have received, a tenth of our income. People think that tithing is about law and legalism, but it isn't. It's before the law, because hundreds of years before the law, Abraham and his descendants tithed to God. Abraham did. Jacob, his grandson, promised that he would. I'm sure that in between those two, Isaac did too. And that so did the children of Israel learn from their father, Jacob. We have a statement from Jesus that supports tithing too. Jesus is preaching woe to the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees. And in Luke 11, Luke's version, could go to Matthew, but let's go to Luke. Woe to you, Pharisees. You tithe mint and rue. You know, we've got rue growing in a garden. We don't use it for for, for herbs. I don't know why we grow it, really. Oh, I know, because it keeps the cats away. That's right. Mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. There are bigger issues than you're giving. Do the bigger issues. Love, mercy, justice, fairness for the oppressed, deliverance for the, for the poor. But don't neglect the other things. What other things? Tithing. Things more important than tithing, yes, but don't neglect tithing. Is that what Jesus said? That's what Jesus said. That's how we read it. Another way scripture illustrates this first fruits, the giving of our, the first part of our income, our increase back to the Lord. And the whole of the tithes to be brought into the Lord's storehouse that there may be food in my house. Now that was a temple in those days, but now it's the church, the community. It's not a building, it's a people. A fellowship, a community. It's not to be distributed. Your tithe is not to be distributed across a number of charities to be brought into one storehouse where we together then give in blessing and help to the poor, to wherever we find ability. The whole tithe is to benefit the whole household of faith. And the Malachi scripture ends with, and I will rebuke the devourer for you. Notice that he will rebuke the devourer. You don't do it, he does it. The enemy will be turned back. The course of events will be changed. Empty will be changed to enough because God's hand will be with us. In a similar word in Haggai, Haggai, similar period of time, says, Consider your ways. You sow much and bring in little. You eat but do not have enough. You drink but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. You know, It's like the coins are falling through. Here's a quote from John Piper, which I I like, I agree with. 
If your purse is not opened at the top with tithes and alms of all you earn, God will sooner or later put holes in the bottom. We teach tithing in Lighthouse. And in applying to be a partner with us, we we remind people again that we would expect you to be faithful to God and to this local church in tithing. There are some who can't tithe. They have no income. They don't receive any. Or because they don't control their finances. And the most common example, let me be very blunt here, the most common example is a believing woman whose husband is not a believer. Even if the income of the household is acknowledged to be joint and shared, it would be surprising if an unbelieving husband agreed to tithe their joint income. He might allow his wife to tithe her income. But that's a, that's a difficult position to be in. Uh, so that's why, you know, women who've become believers, having married them, that man, that's, that's, that's the situation. If you're a believing woman, do not marry an unbelieving man. Just don't do it, girl. All right. Then there's offerings. An offering is a personal gift back to the Lord over and above a tithe in appreciation of thanksgiving. Please note, you cannot substitute an offering for the tithe. It should be something in addition to your tithe. When we each contribute an offering together for a particular purpose, we didn't do it for the roof. We had that in the bank. We're doing that, okay, but then we're down in terms of reserves because of it. When we take a, a, an offering together, it gets another name. Guess what name that is? It's a collection, all right? We're gathering money together for a particular purpose, and we're all giving into it. We're making our offering into a collection. The people of God did that to build the tabernacle and to build the temple. They each brought their contribution into a collection, a whole heap of, of income, and then it was spent together for the common good, to achieve something we've agreed upon together. When we each contribute. <clears throat> then there's a big word here, which is arms. Now, if you're an old-fashioned Christian, like an Anglican or a Catholic, or even if you're an English-speaking Muslim, you'll understand this word. Arms means supplying the needs of the needy, the poor. Arms. We should support the poor. Galatians, you find Paul writing to the Galatians and saying, when we went to Jerusalem and they, we talked about the Gentiles becoming Christians, they wrote this letter to us all, and the one thing they asked us to do is to remember the poor. Now we were already eager to, eager to do that, he said. Remember the poor. Arms are often also collections when we do it together, but we need to do this individually and separately as well. Remember the poor, being, being generous to the needy. <clears throat> there will always be those who give to the charities that support animals and this and that and the other. I believe as Christians we are called specifically and particularly to, to support those things which help the needy, starting with our fellow Christians, the persecuted, the oppressed around the world. We're to be pursuing those things which bring justice to those who are oppressed and deliverance for those who are enchained. It's part of our biblical, covenantal and prophetic mandate to use money to bring freedom. I remind you of my favorite text on this topic. Proverbs 19, verse 17. He who has pity on the poor, in other words, he gives so that the poor are helped, lends to the Lord. The Lord keeps it down in his book. He writes it down. As a debt, you've lent him that money. By giving to the poor, you lend to the Lord. And he will pay back what that person has given. Is that a good promise? Amen. 
We're also to pay Caesar. Now, this is an interesting thing that Jesus talks about. Matthew 22. Jesus was challenged by the scribes and Pharisees trying to trip him. Uh, Should we pay our taxes to Caesar? Now, of course, Judea was under Roman occupation. And so they say, they're thinking now, if he says, yes, we should, then he's a, Jew, then he's a, Roman, a Roman lover. We've got him. If he says you shouldn't, then he's a Roman defier, and we can book him to them. We can tell them that he's defying them. So, trick question. Should we pay our taxes to Caesar then, Jesus? Give me a coin, he said. Give me a coin. They gave him a coin. He said, whose head is it? They said, Caesar's, he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. There are things we should do to honor Caesar, the government. We should pay our taxes. Romans 13, big section on that. I haven't got time to go into it today. But every Christian has, as a duty before God, a duty to pay a fair whack of taxes. Render to all their due, taxes to taxes, fear to fear, honor to honor. But we're to render to God the things that are God's. So in in terms of our giving, we are to render to God the things which are God's. At the same time, don't withhold your taxes. Then there's generosity. There are many scriptures about generosity. The generous soul will be made rich and he who waters will be watered himself and so on. Proverbs, Proverbs, Isaiah and so on. If the resources to help someone in need are in my hand, then I need to take the risk of giving it away because the Lord will bless and return what has been given. The measure you use will sorry, the measure you use will be measured to you. It will come back from a different direction. That's the promise of God. Then another one is contentment. Contentment is an attitude that says, we read it in Hebrews 13, but I'm just paraphrasing it. I will be satisfied with what the Lord has given me. That's the opposite of, of avarice, isn't it? Of, you know, oh, no, I want a car like that, you know. Drive past, I wish I had that house out in wherever it is, you know. I will be satisfied with what the Lord has given me. We read earlier, Paul writing to Timothy, warning that those, uh, about those who teach that Godness is a way to gain and so on. Paul says in Philippians, I've learned to be content in whatever situation I am. To have plenty or to have little. To be, to, 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 to be, be full or to be empty. And then he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's interesting. Everybody takes that phrase. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's talking about he knows how to be content. That's the context. I, can, I need to handle when I've got plenty, and I need to be content when I don't have much at all. And I'll do both by the glory of God, by the grace of God for the glory of God. The aim of the Christian should not be just to pursue wealth, but to pursue contentment in the Lord, receiving all things from him, giving thanks, giving all that should be given back to him, and then giving generously to other offerings and collections, and not forgetting alms. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, Jesus said, when you give alms, when you help the poor. The whole sum of this is this. We are called to live with an open heart and an open hand. We're, we're stewards. We're ready to receive from God generously, but also ready then to give from our hands generously too because we're trusting God to replenish.
We're trusting his supply. Here's a quote from me. The hand that gives, because I've, I've, I've preached this before, and I've not these notes, but I have preached this subject before. The hand that gives nothing or little is open only to receive nothing or little back. The measure you use will be measured to you. The attitude of heart, whether it's generous. If you want God to be generous to you, learn to be generous. But there's a better quote from someone else. Robert Roddenmayer must have been American, surely. There are three kinds of giving. Grudge giving, duty giving, and thanksgiving. Grudge giving says, I hate to. Duty giving says, I ought to, or I have to. Thanksgiving says, I want to. Giving is worship. We worship God by faithful, regular, and genuine giving, generous giving from our income and wealth. We worship him in other ways, but we can't make a substitution of, I'll, I'll do this, but I won't, I'm not going to give that. All right. I've known people in the past who, who argue like that. They'll do almost anything, serve you in all sorts of ways, but they will not tackle this issue of faith and finance. It's like a no-go zone for them. We're called to honor God in how we handle this unrighteous... I wish I had some money in my pocket. I've only got two pound coins. <laughs> we're, we're, we're accountable to God in how we handle this wicked, unrighteous, false God stuff and use it for some good. Yeah? We're called to honor him in how we handle this. It takes faith to handle money well for the glory of God. Think what honor it brings the Lord when we again and again demonstrate that we are keeping our hearts free from the love of money, from pursuing wealth for its own sake. That we're acknowledging his supply. We are living by, from the hand of God. That we're stewards and not owners. By giving faithfully and generously in tithes, offerings and alms, stewarding the rest that remains, taking good care of our families, paying our taxes, being content with what we have as having received it from the hand of God. The life of faith must deal with and handle money well with care, discipline, recognizing that we are, we, we are, we are, we are desperately trying to keep ourselves, protect our hearts from the love of money. Living not for temporary and corruptible wealth, but for the true riches of God. We're not in a competition to have, the better, to have better than the neighbor. We're not in a competition to, to have the latest fashion. We're running the race of faith to live by the grace of God for the glory of God. And how we handle money matters. We're accountable to him. Let's pray. We're going to break bread. And then we're going to sing our final song together. Father, we thank you that you give, us, you give generously to all. And to those of your people who you can trust with more, you give more because they will handle it well. They are learning this thing of generosity, this thing about faithful giving, and then going further, offerings and alms, having a lookout for those in need, being willing, eager to help those in trouble in any way. 
We pray we may learn these lessons, Lord, so that you can entrust us with more, so that we can give more. We want to live, as I've summed it up there, I pray, with an open heart and an open hand. We are, Of course we're ready to receive from you, but we're equally ready to give wherever there is opportunity and particularly where there is need. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.